Well, you can take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we will be. And if all goes to plan, we have three messages left. We have tonight, we have February the 7th, we have February the 14th, Valentine's Day. We'll end on Valentine's Day. So, it'll be a hot date for you to come here on the 14th. After that, uh, we'll have some Easter stuff we're doing, but post-Easter, we will get into confronting cults and counterfeits, which I'm really looking forward to that. I think it'll be an interesting study for us through the spring and the summer. Just because Revelation ends, I want to encourage you to not stop coming to midweek. We had a big uptick in midweek attendance when we started our study of Revelation. The kitchen crew has told me, like, you know, I hope you got something good for after Revelation because we want to see people keep coming. I hope you all will keep coming. I I, I think that as we talk about cults and counterfeits, it's going to be incredibly helpful and interesting, make us better evangelists. But beyond the teaching, it's just the gathering of the saints on Wednesday nights. It's that midweek re-energizing to go back out into the world, to to not have to wait for just Sunday mornings. So I I hope that you will continue to come and be a part of this here on Wednesday nights. The last time we were together in Revelation, we saw the new heaven and the new earth. The old was being wiped away, and behold, the new had come. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things had passed away, and creation received the redemption that it was groaning for. So we saw the new earth, and tonight we see who fills the new earth. Tonight we are not so much talking about a place, but we are talking about a people. We are talking about a beautiful bride who is wed to the beautiful bridegroom. Tonight we see the wife of Jesus. We see the new Jerusalem. We see the church. And as we go through this text, there's five observations that I want us to look at. Number one, that the bride of Christ is the people of God. Secondly, that the bride of Christ is perfected by God. Thirdly, the bride of Christ reflects the pure beauty of God. The bride of Christ is protected by God. And lastly, the bride of Christ is in the presence of God. So I'll read the passage, and then we will jump into it. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, and its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh I keep messing up this one whenever I'm trying to go through this text. Uh, Jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the, 12, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are some who read this passage of Scripture and they understand it to be literal. They understand it to be the literal dimensions of the new earth. So, for example, Clarence Larkin, one of the earliest dispensationalists of the 1800s, said, the new Jerusalem is a literal city with literal dimensions and is to be located on the earth. It is not a symbol of the church, but is the abode of the church. Dr. John MacArthur, another very famous dispensationalist, says that the new Jerusalem is the capital city of heaven. These are brothers, but I believe that they are mistaken for a number of reasons. First of all, Revelation is a book of apocalypse written in the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature, and as we have seen throughout, the nature of the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's pictures and numbers and animals which act as symbols telling us about real things, telling us about the reality of how things have been and how they are and how they ultimately will be. Secondly, the size and the scale of the city in this passage are described to us in numbers that are significant and have been significant throughout the book of Revelation. So for example, you have the number 12, which is God's perfect number for his people, all over this passage. The number 10, which represents a multitude from a human perspective, is heavily heavily involved in the measurements of the new Jerusalem. But most importantly, we understand the passage to be speaking symbolically of a people and not the literal description of a place because the text itself and what is taking place in this passage, particularly the game of comparison that we are seeing in Revelation 17 and in Revelation 21. Now before I go to these comparisons, I'm going to stop there. Are you all hearing all the scratching and stuff like I am? Is it driving you crazy? Okay, all right. I'm going to go to the handheld. Whoever is, is, is that, okay. Okay, felt like a DJ there for a second. So, consider what we see in these verses with me. Revelation 17, 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. We go to Revelation 21.9. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You don't need to go to seminary and you don't need to know Greek to pick up on the parallel that is there. And then it just continues. In chapter 17, John is carried to a lookout point. So 17.3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So he sees the harlot of Babylon in the wilderness. The wilderness represents the world, the former age. She filled up the world. Revelation 21.10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Not the wilderness, but a great high mountain. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So John, not in the wilderness now. Now he's on a high mountain. That's where he needs to be in order to see the woman of heaven. Not the woman of the world, but the woman of heaven descending. The harlot is adorned with jewelry and the clothing of the world in Revelation 17.4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The bride, called the New Jerusalem, is adorned with the glory of God. Verse 11 of chapter 21, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. At the end of each vision, the angel confirms what John has seen in the visions is true. 19.9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You go to 22, verse 6, which we'll cover the next time we're together, Lord willing. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And in each case, after the truth is confirmed, you have John falling down at the feet of the angel and receiving a rebuke. In 19.10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. These clear parallels show us that just as Babylon the harlot symbolized the world and everyone in it who rebels against the Lord and refuses to worship Him, the new Jerusalem then is the bride of Christ, a symbol for the people of God who love the Lord, do not rebel against Him, and will dwell with Him forever. So this is our first point tonight if you're taking notes, our first observation. The bride of Christ is the people of God. The bride of Christ is the people of God. These parallels demonstrate this to us. So does the language that we see in verses 12 and 14. The city has a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed. On the east three gates, the north three gates, the south three gates, the west three gates... The wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on those foundations 
are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes inscribed, 12 foundations, 12 apostles. Do you think the Lord is trying to get a point across to John and to the rest of us? We have 12 gates, and each of the gates has the names of the 12 sons of the tribes of Israel inscribed on it. These names represent the Old Testament people of God. Those who repented of their sin and trusted in God's grace to come. Trusted in the Messiah to come. On the foundations of the city, the names of the 12 apostles are inscribed. These names represent the New Testament people of God. Those who have repented of their sin and trusted in God's grace that has already come. The Messiah who has already come. And together, they represent the one people of God. Together, they represent true Israel. Some have argued that the names on the gates and the names on the foundation show us that there will be two distinct groups in heaven, that there will be Jewish believers and there will be Gentile believers. And church, I don't just find that to be an error. I find that to be offensive to what Christ has accomplished. There was never a time when the people of God was decided purely by bloodline and ethnicity. While Israel was the people group that God revealed himself to and he set his love on by giving them the law, giving them the tabernacle, the prophets, the temple, we know that not all of Israel was Israel. Paul says in Romans 9 verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There were some Israelites who, despite receiving the sign of circumcision, turned away from the Lord, proving they had uncircumcised hearts. Furthermore, there were some Gentiles, and we're going to see this again, actually, in our text on Sunday, that were included on the Old Covenant promise, despite the fact that they were not Jewish in the least. You think about Tamar, you think about Rahab, you think about Ruth. These are Gentile women in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true Israel of God are those who are a new creation by the grace of God revealed to us in Christ the Messiah. It's those who believe God and have their faith credited to them as righteousness in the same manner as Abraham. And so you see Paul teaching this throughout the New Testament. You see it in Galatians, in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, towards the end of that letter, where he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. So who's the Israel of God? Those who are a new creation. Galatians 3, verses, uh, verse 28, talking about the nature of the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. One in Christ Jesus. In just a few minutes, we'll see how there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And that is because the entirety of the New Jerusalem is the temple. The whole people of God is the temple of God and will be forever. And he's building this temple right now. Brick by brick, soul by soul, as his people are converted. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in that temple, there is no dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 2 talks about how Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If he has created in himself one new man, in place of the two, why do we hold to a theology that keeps trying to create two men in place of the one? Instead of seeing a Jew and Gentile distinction in heaven, we should just see one people. The bride of Christ, made up of many nations, but one bride. Made up of people groups from every shore, but she's one kingdom. This is demonstrated in verse 24 when you see a myriad of the redeemed from every nation walking by the light of the Lord, the greatest of these redeemed people groups bringing their glory into the city. And they're laying the glory and the honor of the nations at the feet of Jesus. And he's the only one deserving of this sort of praise. It's a very diverse bride, but she's one bride bringing her glory and honor to her bridegroom. She's the people of God. And she's perfect. She's perfect as her bridegroom is perfect. And we see this in our next observation. You'll notice she's coming down out of heaven from God. She's not like the harlot. The harlot found in the wilderness of the world, riding around on Satan's beast, and said she comes from God to even see her. John's got to go up to a high mountain. She is not a city that's filled with sin and rebellion like Babylon the harlot. She's a holy city. She's not born from below. She's born from above. She's a bride that has been called out of the world into covenant with God by the power of the Spirit. She is a bride that has been washed in the blood of Christ. That's who she is in principle. But as of right now, she's still being perfected. We're being sanctified by the Lord Jesus. We see this idea clearly in Ephesians 5 where Paul's talking about marriage. And he's talking about the manner in which a husband should love his wife. He should love her sacrificially. He should lead her with the word the way that Christ loves the church and washes her with the water of the word. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So you see what Jesus is doing there. He is washing, he is sanctifying his church with the water of his word so that on the day of her wedding, she will not just be perfect in principle, she will be perfect in reality. That she will be in splendor. She will have no spots, she will have no wrinkles, she will have no blemishes. She will be a pure bride, opposite of the harlot of Babylon. So that's our second point tonight. The bride of Christ is perfected by God. Hasn't happened yet. We're not perfect yet. We know that. We sin against each other. We offend each other. 
Then we have to forgive each other and bear with one another in love. We've got all these one another commandments in the New Testament about the way that we're supposed to be operating in love with one another. We fall short of those. We fall short of righteousness in our dealings with one another. Then at times we believe wrong things. At times we boast of wrong things. At times we bellow about wrong things. In thought, in word, and in deed, the bride of Christ finds herself quite wrinkled, quite spotted, quite blemished. We saw this in Revelation 2 and 3. You had the seven churches of Asia Minor, which were real churches, but those churches, being seven of them, also represent the church throughout the church age. There were a lot of problems in those churches, a lot of pitfalls that they had stumbled into. They, they lacked love. They were flirting with the world. There was false teaching. They were lukewarm. And yet, here we are at the end of Revelation, and it's the same church perfected by the sanctifying love of God and being washed by the truth of God. So though we are imperfect, take heart in knowing that He is daily washing us in the water of the Word, that He is daily perfecting us until the day when we will be made perfect forever. And in the bride's perfection, what she actually does is she reflects the pure beauty of the Lord. You see this in verse 11. You see this in verses 18 through 21. The bride has the glory of God. It's radiance, a most rare jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. The walls of the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, is built with jasper, and the whole city is pure gold like clear glass. The foundations are adorned with every kind of jewel. The streets are like gold that is clear as glass. The gates are made of pearls. This is beautiful. So our third observation tonight. The bride of Christ reflects the pure beauty of God. It's the people of God being perfected by God. And the bride of Christ reflects the pure beauty of God and will forever. As John sees the new Jerusalem descending, she has the glory of God. And this makes her more beautiful than any bride who has ever walked any aisle. I remember very little from my wedding day. The whole thing was pretty surreal. But I do remember the doors of the vestibule. It's what they call the... The little, the little church lobby, right? The vestibule. So the, the vestibule opened up at Red Lane Baptist, and it was breathtaking. There was my bride. My father-in-law, not so much breathtaking. He, he looked fine in his suit. But I, I had heard rumors of my wife's beauty all day long. People would tell me, oh, you just wait till you see her. Just wait till you see her. Oh, she looks so beautiful. Just wait till you see her. And we were one of those couples. We did not see each other. We didn't even do the little hand-holding around the corner with the photograph, okay? We didn't do any of that. We stayed totally away from each other. I, I, I had talked to my dog more than I had talked to her that day. Like, I had not seen her. But then she came walking down that aisle with the makeup and the dress and the lipstick and the whole thing. And I took a mental picture to hang on to as long as my memory will hold up. And so I very much remember, not a lot, but I very much remember her. That being said, love my wife. Her radiance on that day has nothing on this. Nothing. The radiance of this bride is so beautiful 
that John stretches the use of human language to describe it. He starts describing the bride in ways that kind of break your brain. For instance, in verse 11, she has radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper that's crystal clear. Now here's the thing about jasper. It's a jewel that, is, that, that comes in a lot of colors. Most of the time it's reddish brown, but it can also be green. It could be yellow. It could be gray. But here's what it's never. It's never clear. It's an opaque jewel. And yet, the New Jerusalem is like jasper that is clear as crystal. Dennis Johnson says, John is straining the limits of his hearer's experience to try to communicate a beauty that lies beyond the capacity of the first earth. He's saying, I'm seeing a level of beauty here nobody's ever seen. You see it again in verse 18 where the city is like pure gold that is like clear glass. Talk about my wedding day. I'm getting my wedding ring resized right now. It is currently in the hands of Hellsberg Jewelers. And so they've got that thing, and they're supposed to get it back to me. It's a, it's a white gold ring, supposedly pure. I hope it is. And, and, and so they've got my ring, right? At no point as they handled it did they handle it like glass because gold is not glass, and gold is not clear like glass. And yet the city is described as pure gold like clear glass. Verse 21, the streets are described in the same way. So once again, John's describing a heavenly vision that breaks the boundaries of this former age. This is a new earth beauty, a new earth perfection being described that we are only left to imagine at this moment with our very limited minds. In verse 23, you see that the bride is a city of light. Light pervades the entire scene. Light covers every inch of the new Jerusalem. The people of God will forever be a people of light just as they are a people of radiance. And all of this is because they have the glory of God. It is ours forever. Aside from the light and the jasper and the jasper wall, we also see that the foundations of the wall have every kind of jewel. We have jasper mentioned again, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, and jacinth, which is the one that I keep getting hung up on, amethyst. Those jewels are hard to say. There is an interpretive significance to these jewels, though, that I will get to in a moment. But for now, I just want to say that these stones give you all the colors of the rainbow. It's the full spectrum of the rainbow with those jewels. You'll remember we've seen a rainbow before in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4, verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This only confirms what John has said in chapter 21, verse 11, that the bride has the glory of God. The very glory we see at his throne in that heavenly worship scene in Revelation 4, the bride is now reflecting. At her very foundations, she is adorned with his beauty and will be forever. The perfected people of God are reflecting the pure beauty of God. You got the pearly gates, which have almost become a cartoon, a caricature in our Western minds. We imagine Peter standing there with a clipboard. I did imagine that when I was a kid. I used to think there was a long line to get into heaven. 
and you would get in that line and you would wait. And it was like the most anxious line you were ever going to be in in your life. And that you would get up there, and I, I didn't even have enough biblical knowledge to, to know that Peter was associated with it. I just thought it'd be like an angel or some important guy. And, and they would check you know, the list like Santa Claus, you know, to, to see if you were naughty or nice. And if you were nice, you get to go in. If you were naughty, then you would go to hell. And so I thought, man, I hope I can live a good life. That's going to be a really anxious wait. See if you make it or not forever on the line. I, I didn't go to church, right? I, I wasn't raised in church. So most of that probably came from like Looney Tunes cartoons or something. But how many people do have that thought because of comic strips and Hollywood and folk theology and bad preaching? In truth, the gates cut from the one pearl just add to the symbolism of the purity of the bride. A pearl that would be big enough to cut 12 giant gates would have to be the most massive, brilliant, undefiled, sought-after pearl to ever exist. And indeed it is. What is the gate that you must walk through to enter into the people of God? What is the gate you must walk through to enter into the church? Who is the door of the church? We know it's the Lord Jesus. It's the Christ of God. It's Jesus. He is pure righteousness, and His bride is cut from Him. His bride is formed by Him, and she reflects His purity like she reflects His glory. So what a beautiful bride this is because she reflects the pure beauty of the bridegroom. Let's keep moving along. A couple of points left here. The bride is the people of God. The bride is perfected by God. The bride reflects the pure beauty of God. Now let's consider her security on the new earth. We saw in verse 12 how the bride city has this great high wall. In verse 15, the angel has a measuring rod and he is going to measure the city and he's going to measure the gates and measure the walls. Now this is important. Because back in chapter 11, we got a brief vision of a measured temple. But the court outside of the temple was not to be measured, and it was trampled. It was trampled for 42 months, which refers to the time of the church age when the Lord's people are persecuted on the earth, and they're in tribulation, and they're suffering in the world. But now on the new earth, there is instruction to measure the whole thing, showing that the time of trampling is done. The nations will never again tread the church under her feet. The only thing that we see underfoot in this measured city are streets of gold like pure glass. So number four, the bride of Christ is protected by God. There's a number of ways we see this in the passage. First of all, we have the city itself that lies four square. Length, width, and height, all completely equal, meaning it's a cube. If you calculated the city's size in physical terms, so if you took this totally literally, it would be 1,365 miles wide, long, and high. Dennis Johnson points out that the height would put the city's uh, height in the path of man-made satellites today. But again, the number and the unit of measurement 12,000 stadia clues us into the fact that we're not talking about the physical dimensions of a literal city here. It's more symbolic language to help us understand who the people of God are that are going to dwell on the new earth forever and how secure they are in Christ. We've already established tonight 12 is God's perfect number for his people. 12 tribes, 
12 apostles. Here we have the number 12 and the measurement multiplied by 1,000. 1,000 is a multiple of 10. In apocalyptic literature like Revelation or Daniel, 10 is significant. Michael Kuykendall talks about the number 10. He says this number and its multiples emphasizes indefiniteness, magnitude, and completeness, often from the point of view of time and humanity. And so with these things in mind, the measurements of the city reveal not so much the dimensions of the new earth, but the delivered people who live there. It will be the people of God, and their number will be vast, and their number will be complete. No one whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life is going to be left out. They all are going to be there. It's not the first time in Revelation we've seen the people of God described with the number 12,000. We saw it in Revelation 7, verses 4-8. through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he just goes down the 12 tribes. 12,000 from Judah were sealed. 12,000 from Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. The walls of the bride city are measured 144 cubits thick. If you're good at math, you don't have to be that good for this one. You'll recognize that 144 is 12 times 12. Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God, multiplied together 144 cubits. Another hint that the vision of the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. The bride is the New Jerusalem. 144 cubits is 216 feet. Those are some thick, symbolic walls. And there's meaning in that as well. This is God saying to John, my people will be secure forever. No one's going to be able to get to them. God's people will be as safe eternally as His hand is strong and secure. In a series on Revelation, Vodi Bauckham pointed out that the symbolically thick walls communicate a very important truth to us, that what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve is not going to happen again. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered, like, Man, what if somebody on the new earth picks a piece of fruit off a tree they're not supposed to? Does this whole thing just happen again? What's going to stop that from happening again? Well, when God saved you, he made a resurrection promise to you. That you will be resurrected, that you will be given a body in the likeness of the resurrected Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. He's talking about Adam. The second man is from heaven, talking about Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, you were born in Adam, so right now we bear the image of Adam, right? We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So in the new earth, we're going to have bodies like Jesus' resurrected body. By the redeeming grace of God, you will be raised up with a body that bears the image of the man of heaven, and you will never sin again, because you will not have the potential to sin again, any more than a lighter has the potential to burn a slab of marble. Vodibachum says the wall symbolizes a theological reality. 
that God has made a distinct, permanent separation between those who are His and those who are not. Those who are outside and those who are inside. The heaven is made new, the earth is made new, and through the resurrection of our bodies, we are made new. And when we are made new, we are made like Him in a way that Adam never was. So we will be secure from sin forever. There will be no hint of it in us. There will be no hint of it in the new earth. And there never will be. It's not just the wall in the bride city that gives us this picture of protection. It's also the gates in the walls. Notice in verse 25, they will never be shut by day or night. What what do gates in, in, in cities do? They keep enemies out. So why will the gates be open? So there's no enemies left. There's not even any night there. God has tossed all the enemies in the lake of fire at the end of Revelation 20. At nighttime is when the enemy would usually attack. Well, there's not going to be any night. There's not going to be any chance that the city will be caught in slumber. We will be alive forever in the new Jerusalem. And God's people will never again be under attack. And just to be abundantly sure of this, we see 12 angels at the 12 gates, reminiscent of the angel guarding Eden after man fell with the fiery sword. Remember that in Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, in Revelation 21, the angels guard the gates to ensure that no one on the outside would ever come inside. It's another way for God to make clear to us that our enemies will be vanquished. We will be safe and secure forever. Or as verse 27 says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The people of God are perfected by God. They reflect the pure beauty of God. They're protected by God. And the final observation for tonight, it's a fulfillment of a new covenant promise. The bride of Christ is in the presence of God. There's a lot of temple language to be seen in this passage. There is direct temple talk. There are allusions to the temple. And to understand this, we need to understand something of the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple. And the language there will remind you very much of what we've read tonight. Ezekiel 40, verse 2. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So you have a temple like a city being viewed from a high mountain. Does this not sound familiar to us? Many people believe this is a physical temple yet to be built. They say that this temple must be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem sometime before or after the Lord Jesus returns. I take this to be a misunderstanding of the biblical text, a misunderstanding of Ezekiel's vision and really the book of Ezekiel in general. The similarity in the language is indeed pointing to the building of another temple, but it's not a physical temple that's going to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's the spiritual temple of the people of God. Just like the bride city in Revelation 21, Ezekiel's temple is measured. Ezekiel's temple has an impenetrable wall. Ezekiel was seeing what John was seeing. Not the building of a literal structure, but of a spiritual people. 
In Ezekiel's book of prophecy, he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple in chapters 8 through 11 as judgment on Israel. But there's hope. In chapter 36, a new covenant is promised. In chapter 37, a valley of dry bones is coming to life. And then he sees a picture of the new covenant people of God being built in the metaphor of a temple in chapters 40 through 48. There are so many more parallels between Revelation 21 and 22, but we just don't have time tonight. And I hope we have a little bit more time for it the next time we're together. But as we get into Revelation 21, 9 through 27, and we read this passage we're studying tonight, you notice that there is no temple inside of the city. Why? Because the whole city is the temple. Because the people of God are the temple of God forever and ever on the new earth. This is no less than what God promised to us through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31:33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's what we saw. In 21 verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember how the city is a perfect cube? If you know your Old Testament, that might remind you of something. It might remind you of the holiest place in the tabernacle and in the temple. 1 Kings 6.20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. 20, 20, 20, a cube. In the days of sacrifice, only the high priest could enter in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would make sacrifice for himself, and then he would sacrifice for the people. And this is the only interface with God that was allowed in that place. But those days are over now. The curtain was torn upon the death of Christ. Jesus, the great high priest, has laid down his life, has atoned for our sin, which is what I believe Ezekiel is seeing in chapters 40 through 48 when he's seeing sacrifices. He intercedes for us. And he doesn't just do that now, he will do that forever. And so we enter into the temple of prayer in the here and now. By His blood, we can pray anytime, anywhere. We can interface with God. When the new earth comes, it's going to get even better because the whole city will become the most holy place. The entire people of God will be the temple of God. We will dwell in His presence in the light of His glory for all of eternity. As chapter 22, verse 4 tells us, we will see His face. You remember the jewels from verses 18 through 21, the hard-to-say jewels. Eight of those 12 jewels were found in the breastplate of the high priest, the only one who could enter the holy place. And now those jewels are on the very foundation of the New Jerusalem, showing that the bride of Christ will not interface with God once a year. She'll do it at all times. This is a fulfillment of what was promised to Israel as they suffered in exile. They were separated from Jerusalem, separated from their place of worship, but God comforted them with a promise of a time when they would suffer no more and be separated no more. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. 
and lay your foundations with sapphires, and I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. And finally, we see there is no need of sun or moon to shine on the city, which is God communicating through the vision that as his people dwell in his presence, there will be no darkness. He is a God of light. We will be a people of light. From creation, sun and moon has dictated day and night and time for us. But those heavenly bodies will no longer serve that purpose. Instead, we will be in the light of the presence of God forever without fret. Much like the disappearance of the sea being symbolic, interpreters are torn that are in the amillennial camp. Does this really mean there's no celestial lights on the new earth? I wouldn't lose our heads about that either way. But even if there are, they will not serve the same purpose. We will not need them to. God's grace to his people is even better than we understand, is it not? And as his church and as his bride, we will spend all of eternity just tracing that grace like a hunter tracing the path of a deer. We will be his people, perfected, purely beautiful, like the one we will marry, protected in his presence forever. This is the bride of Christ who will live on the new earth. If I could have one word of application to you after all this heavy teaching tonight, because it is heavy, there's a lot in this passage. I would say that we should let this impact how we talk about and how we treat the bride of Christ in the here and now. Listen, I know that we can be a complaining people, right? We, we can just kind of start to, to complain about the church. We can start to moan about the church, bellow about the church. May I even use the word whine? The people in it. Oh, I just can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe they said that. The structure of it. No, that's going to need to change. You're going to have to change that. Right? Until we do, well, we're just broken. Or then when changes take place, I don't like it. I don't like what's happening. I don't know what's happening to this church. Or we sometimes will take hurt from the past and project it onto present and future leaders. It's easy to sit around at a cookout and just start bashing the church. It happens. It's easy to sit around at a lunch and just start bashing the church. It's easy to sit around in your mind and instead of praying for the church, you bash the church. Just remember, brother and sister, that is Jesus' wife you're talking about. And he laid down his life for her. He shed his blood for her. Would you come within earshot of me bad-mouthing my wife? Would you do that really with any man? I mean, just imagine, like, coming within earshot. I don't like her music. I don't like the way she dresses, and I don't like how she looks, and I don't like her mistakes. Right? If you just start bad-mouthing Katie in front of Michael or, or Dee Dee in front of Lloyd, right? Deborah in front of Dave. Like, just start bad-mouthing a man's wife in front of him. If he's got any level of holy courage, then he is going to become confrontational with you and say, that is my wife you are speaking about. That is my flesh and my blood. That is bone of my bone that you are talking about. Why do we think we can badmouth the bride of Christ whom he died for and who he washes and who he is preparing for this great glory and it's no thing to him? 
Repent of this sin and intend to do it no more. We have seen what he has in store for his bride. Oh, how much he must love her. Father God, I thank you for the word tonight. It's heavy, Lord. It's a heavy, heavy uh, passage. Every word, Father, it's got a string that you can just follow back to the Old Testament. Everything has meaning. Some of the words feel like they have multiple meanings. But God, as we look at it, one thing is sure. You love your people. You love your people. Even if there's brothers and sisters in this room who are dispensational and they totally disagree with this interpretation of this passage, they would agree with that, that this is a passage about how you love your people. There's no denying it. Lord, the, the, the harlot of this world is ugly. But your bride is beautiful by your grace and you love her. Help us to love the church the way you love the church. You say, love one another as I have loved you. Help us to do that. The world is going to know us by our love for one another. By whether or not we love the church the way that you've called us to. The way you love the church. I pray we would sacrifice for her. We would lay down our life for her that we would be eager to see her washed with the water of the word, sanctified and presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Lord, when we get down on our knees in our prayer closets tonight or tomorrow, I pray that the prayers for our church would be many, that we would pray for the unity of our church, that we would pray for the programs of our church, that we would pray for the evangelism of our church, that we would pray for the suffering in our church, the grieving in our church, the hurting in our church, the triumphant in our church, those who got promotions in our church. We would be on the, our knees for the church, that we would pray for the church, and that the way we love the church would be reflected in our prayer lives, would be reflected in the way that we serve her, reflected in the way that we talk about her. Give us a love for the church. And also, God, as we love the church and that love increases and grows and, and as we walk out of here on nights like tonight, maybe a little bit sad. Going, ah, I wish we didn't have to leave. I wish I could have another hour of conversation with these folks, but I'm so tired and I have to sleep. And we would look forward to the day when time will be no more. We'll literally have all the time in the world. We'll have all the time of eternity. We'll have ages upon ages upon ages to sit together and to talk about you and to talk about your grace and to talk about things that are pure and good and blameless. And it's just going to be sweet, Lord. And so I pray that we would not just love the church in the here and now, but we would look forward to being the church forever. Give us the real hope of heaven. We would look forward to the kingdom of love that we will dwell in forever as the people of God. Give us hope of the new earth in our hearts, Lord. Thank you so much for how you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.